I recently read a story, quite hard to believe story actually, uh, about two brothers. They were identical twins, and they were very, very close. Uh, they even jointly took over their father's business when the father died. One day in the store, one brother left a dollar bill on top of the register and then went to help a customer in the front of the store. When he came back, the dollar bill was missing. So he asked his twin brother if he took the money. And the brother said, no, of course not. A little later in that day, he asked again, maybe with just a little more suspicion. And the brother starts to become angry and defensive. Over time, they would bring the matter up. And eventually, it led to this bitterness and division between them. Unbelievably, they eventually dissolved their partnership. They put up a partition in the store and ran two separate competing businesses. An open wound right in the middle of the community. Twenty years later, through a series of providences, a man comes into the store and ends up confessing to stealing that dollar bill, to taking that dollar. A confession which led to the eventual reconciliation of the brothers. Now, it's an extreme example, but maybe it's not that extreme. We see similar things all the time, right? Anyone who's lived through the last year knows maybe the example's not as extreme as it sounds. Who would have predicted the stuff that has divided the body of Christ over the last 12 months? Friends get divided, family members get estranged, churches get torn apart over things which in the scheme of things are rather trivial. So we have this human condition where alienations, large ones and small ones, accumulated and defended and allowed to harden, right? Grudges clung to, and in some cases, you know, clung to with a death grip. Bitter memories of some slight treasured and turned over and over again in our heads. I can tell you, as a pastoral counselor, people will occasionally tell me stuff, and you, I realize this person is nursing a grudge that is 30 or 40 years old because of this slight that they suffered decades ago from this other person. This happens more frequently than you think. All of this occurs in an atmosphere where the oxygen of God's mercy has been sucked out of the room, right? Where the free mercy of God has somehow vanished from the scene and all order and proportion is lost and we live in these shriveled, shrunken existences where some tit-for-tat notion of fairness or justice or equality or revenge, some desire to punish the other, to win the argument, has replaced the gospel itself. 
This is the kind of creatures we are. Our beatitude this morning, right? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful. Happy, flourishing are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. This is balm that the church needs, right? This is... This is a healing remedy for the wreckage of corrosive and bitter divisions, right, which taint our lives and our witness. So we ought not to be too quick to presume that we've got this beatitude wired, because I suggest we don't. So I want to make four points. They should be there on the outline. Mercy... Defined, mercy source, mercy shown, mercy received. So first, let's talk about defining it. Um, you know, mercy, like a number of virtues in the Beatitudes, was not highly valued in the ancient world. That's strange to us, right, because we value it, but it wasn't. You know, for them, the four cardinal virtues were wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage, which are certainly noble. But things like poverty of spirit, or meekness, or mercy, they were considered unmanly, right? weak. This is an area where Christianity has forever changed. And it's enlarged the world's, especially the West's, but the whole world's estimation of the virtuous life. So the first thing to say here about mercy is that it's not some sort of easygoing acceptance of sin and evil, you know, some sort of spineless tolerance, as if we could overlook the sins of others and say to God, look, I showed this guy mercy, you can't take my sins into account. That would be a complete distortion of the spirit, not only of the Sermon on the Mount, but of this very beatitude. But we do have to ask this question. I think it's important to ask it and not just assume. What is it? What is mercy? One way to get at defining mercy, I think, is to ask ourselves, how does it differ from grace? Because obviously they're connected. They're related. They overlap a good bit. Scripture will use them together. But I think it's like a rough first approach to the issue, we could say grace, grace of God focuses on sin and guilt. The accent on, in grace is on the idea that it pardons, that it reinstates, that it justifies. When we talk about mercy, the idea that's highlighted is the relief, the assistance, the help, the pity on the misery resulting from sin and guilt. Right? It comforts, it lifts up. So we want to say that mercy is this attitude towards sinners from which the grace that pardon flows. Mercy is this spirit of generosity from which help and assistance flow. Maybe put it a little differently. Grace contemplates sinners as undeserving and guilty. Mercy looks upon them, contemplates them as in misery and distress. So mercy then, more simply, is love for those in misery or in need. And it's most akin to compassion, 
You know, you'll read some, I was, I was reading Augustine on this beatitude, and he, he uses this, this translation, and you'll see this in translations till today. Blessed are the compassionate, for they shall receive compassion. It's most akin to compassion. And of course, compassion means literally to suffer with others. Co-passion, right? It's what Jesus had when he looked out on the multitude and saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. I'm, I'm concerned that our culture is creating an atmosphere of um, a sort of condescending grievance atmosphere, right? An atmosphere of, of criticism, right? Jesus looks on the multitudes and he doesn't think, well, these people, <laughs> you know, they're getting what they deserve. He looks out and he has deep compassion. He's deeply moved. So mercy then means getting outside of oneself. It, it begins as a disposition, but it acts. If it doesn't act, it's not mercy. Right? If it doesn't act, it isn't mercy. And this action is costly. Mercy takes up the plight of others. By the way, undeserving others. Everybody has mercy on, the, on, on people who are in some kind of misery through no fault of their own. That's a wonderful thing, of course. But mercy goes beyond that. It shoulders the burden of people. It gets inside and underneath their woes. I mean, think about that. Mercy gets inside. It gets underneath. It digs down into the situation the other person is in. And it freely, generously expends itself for the sake of relieving others. Again, even undeserving others. In fact, especially undeserving others. So that's the definition the second thing to say about it is its source. There should be no surprise here. Mercy flows from the infinite mercy of God. The most merciful God. There's this extraordinary passage in Exodus 34, right, where Moses asked God to show him his glory. He wants to see who God is. He wants to see God's face. And God passes by him and makes a pronouncement. And that pronouncement is extraordinary in light of this beatitude. Here's what God says to Moses about his glory, meaning his being, his godness. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. It's the first thing he says about himself to Moses when Moses says, show me your glory. A God merciful and gracious. Mercy is the chief, fundamental feature of the glory of God, the Lord of the covenant. And then scripture goes on to teach. Actually, it's in Psalm 103, which we heard read, but it's in other places, that the Lord's mercy is over all his works. So mercy is not compartmentalized by God. It's over all his works. The, the text completely 
continues to tell us that the Lord is merciful in all his ways. All his works, all his ways. His mercies are new every morning. All of his works, all of his ways, every morning. And this is good for us because if not, we would be consumed. We are under this mercy. We live and breathe and move and have our being by it. Right, and then the apostle, Paul, tells us that God is the father of mercies, the God of all comfort. And so, in the Gospels, Jesus can command us this way. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Now, that's a high standard. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. And, of course, the Father's mercy is embodied in Jesus Christ. Right? He is the mercy of God abounding to the chief of sinners. When we look at Jesus, we see that God is merciful. The God who is rich in mercy, Paul says. Wealthy. Prolific. Because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. And this Christ, who's the embodiment of God's mercy, right, shows us the depths of this mercy, perhaps most clearly on the cross. Not just because there he substitutes for us sinners, but because there he prays for his enemies, his murderers, and says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's how far down the mercy of God for sinners goes. So in Jesus, God has come into the human condition, into our plight. Dug down inside and shouldered our sin and our misery and our grief and our sorrow and our death and our condemnation and gladly expended himself. For our sakes, on our behalf. T.F. Torrance, the great Scottish theologian, used to say here with a little bit of hyperbole, in the cross we see that God loves us more than he loved himself. And there's that great text from 1 Peter, right, which explains why you're sitting here this morning. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And for this reason, you have moved from not being the people of God to being the people of God. There is a tendency, a natural thing in the human heart, where Christians who've been translated by mercy alone out of darkness into the light of God in Jesus can then turn back and look at people still in the realm of darkness and forget that it was mercy that moved you from that point to this point. And then just engage in a series of moralistic critiques and condemnation of those people. It's astonishing how we do this. You were once not a people. And now you are a people. And there's only a one-word explanation for that. Mercy. 
It is according to his mercy that Peter tells us that he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And as risen, what does Jesus do? He ascends and becomes a merciful high priest that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So the triune God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, he is the wellspring, the source, the infinite source of mercy. So that's the source. Let's talk a little bit about showing mercy. So the, the rationale, of the, the, uh, the basis, the absolute necessity of our showing mercy is, as we've just seen, that we've received mercy. This is not complicated. We have tasted the mercy of the triune God. Therefore, we're charged to show it. He who is, Jesus said, forgiven much, loves much. And he understands the depths of the mercy that's been received. And one such as that shows mercy. But again, it's this forgetfulness of the mercy that we've received which turns us into basically law-keeping people. How much mercy you show is how much mercy you know. You can, you can almost, it's, it's almost a formula. How much mercy you show will tell the world how much mercy you know. But what about this person? And what about that person? Well, that's the whole point of mercy, again. We didn't deserve it. We show it. We reflect it. If we forget this mercy, if we forget it, and Peter talks about the danger of forgetting your former purification, then we're in danger of becoming Christian Pharisees, people who tithe mint and dill and cumin, but forget the weightier matters of the law, Jesus said, among which is mercy. So mercy, then, is not optional for us. It's not like a nice extra that we might occasionally indulge in. It is commanded because it has already been freely given. So we can expand this beatitude a bit and put it this way. This is my expansive paraphrase. Right? Blessed are those who, having received great mercy, show mercy, for they shall receive further mercy. Blessed are those who, having received great mercy, show mercy, for they shall receive further mercy. And you'll notice, Jesus does not give a limited scope for the beatitude here. He does not restrict in any way the wideness of our mercy. He expects, as a general rule, for us to be prolific here, right? for mercy to extend to all men. You know, there are no commands which say, be moderate in showing mercy. Be careful that you don't show too much mercy. So I want to look at our obligation to, to show mercy under four categories. 
Yes, it's four categories on the third point of the sermon. But the four categories are the household of faith, our enemies, the marginalized, and people in general. Right? Those are the four categories. The household of faith, our enemies, the marginalized, people in general. We don't want to leave anybody out. So first, the household of faith. We are, the Apostle Paul says, to do good to all men. Especially, he says, to the household of faith. We have a special obligation to our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And thus we're commanded to weep with those who weep. To bear one another's burden. We can do this, you know why? Because Christ has borne our burdens. He's borne the burden of our sin. We're liberated from having to justify ourselves before the throne of God. Now you're free to do good deeds. Right? Without the calculus that often comes with good deeds. So we're we're called then to assist the poor among us. To tend particularly to widows and orphans. James calls that true religion. Now, while we're all to show this mercy, some have the gift of showing mercy. Right? There are people who have the charism, the, the grace of God to do this. Paul says, if you have the gift of showing mercy, do it with cheerfulness. It's a delightful task. How beautiful is this? God has freely shown us mercy. Then we cheerfully show it to other people. Right? Now, the intense importance of showing this mercy to our brethren, our fellow servants in Christ, even if there's a, a gap between us and them, some difference, some friction, this is shown most sharply in the parable of the unforgiving servant. You remember this parable? It's in Matthew 18, I believe. The first servant is shown enormous mercy by having this huge debt forgiven, and then he goes out and beats a fellow servant a fellow servant who owed him just a a little bit, a much lesser debt. Much lesser than the debt he was pardoned for. And here, I want you to hear the Lord's words to that servant at the end of the parable. Here's what he says. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Now listen. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Right? This is the phenomenon, right? Our grievous, innumerable sins, we love to have mercy poured out on them. Other people's little peccadilloes, we want justice for that. It's an astonishing maladjustment and malproportion that our souls have suffered, that God is healing gradually in the gospel. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? Right? This, is, this is an expansion. It's a living commentary on what Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount. If you do not forgive your brothers from the heart, your heavenly Father will not forgive you of your sins. The one who remembers God's mercy to themselves Right? Who, who, who beats their breast like the publican and says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. Right? Such a person 
is going to embrace the weaknesses and the foibles and even the grievous faults of others with gentle, pardoning mercy. We must not forget this. This is the prescription that we need. So they're not going to respond to others with anger and self-righteousness, right? They lack, again, they lack the altitude for that. But here, here's what I want you to see from the parable. The one who does not do this, who doesn't pardon, who insists that the other party get what they deserve, and that's certainly not mercy, right? Who wants some kind of repayment, right? That person in their callous judgmentalness is not, the parable teaches, that person is not in Jesus Christ. If you read the whole parable, it's clear that the person who doesn't show mercy has never understood the mercy they've received. They've never actually received the mercy. So it turns out that mercy is required and that quite a bit is at stake in whether we are people who show it or not. He has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires. What the Lord requires. Do justice, love mercy. Love mercy. Mercy should be something we really rejoice in, right? And walk humbly with your God. So mercy is required in all cases, but especially in the household of God. Your eternal destiny depends on it. Like if you have a brother or sister that you're not showing mercy to, It is your soul that is in danger. Judgment, James says, will be merciless to the one who has not shown mercy. And by the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The second thing here is we're to show mercy to our enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Again, this is just imitation of Christ who said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In fact, it's in the context of doing good, doing good to and loving our enemies, that we're reminded in the Gospels that our Father shows his kindness his mercy to the ungrateful and the evil. Right? He makes his sun rise on the just and the unjust. He gives rain to the just and the unjust. All day long, every day, in every culture, over every inch of the planet, God is lavishing his kindness on undeserving people. Right? The world is running on the mercy of God. Think of it this way. The father, like the son taught, the father is turning the other cheek all day, every day. Anyone can love and greet and show mercy to their friends and brothers. Even the Gentiles do that. Even the Gentiles do that. It's here that Jesus says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And if that's not a high enough standard, he makes it clear. For you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The fullness and the splendor 
the integrity and the maturity of God himself is to be reflected in the mercy that we show. This was, uh, when I was preparing this sermon, I, I got to stumble upon a story which I had forgotten about, but it's a very famous story. Many of you know it. But this, this is modeled beautifully by Corey Ten Boom, who, with great struggle, forgave the prison guard of the Nazi concentration camp where her sister died and where she suffered terribly. She actually saw this prison guard who was later converted at a church service in Munich. And he came up to her and said, isn't it wonderful Christ forgives all our sins? He did not know who she was, I don't think. But she knew who he was. And with some real struggle, she managed to extend the love and the pardon of Christ to him. Right? That's resurrection mercy in action. Because he is a brother in Christ. Third, we're to show mercy to the marginalized. And the failure to grasp this caused a great deal of confrontation between Jesus and the religious leadership of his day. Maybe we can handle the mercy to the household of the faith, mercy to our family, mercy to basically good, moral, law-keeping people. But Jesus is eating with and showing mercy to tax collectors. Right? Tax collectors. Prostitutes. The guy has Democrats in his house for dinner. And Jesus clearly expects us to imitate him. Because it's in the context of meals with the marginalized, right, with the sick who need a physician, that he tells the Pharisees who are struggling with this, you know what he turns to them and says? You need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. Because the Pharisees, they were very good at the liturgy. Their liturgy was impeccable. They were good at theology. I didn't come to call the righteous, Jesus says. I came to call sinners to repentance. So especially those who are marginalized and maybe marginalized by their own behavior. They need mercy. And finally, we're to show, show mercy, even quite costly mercy, to people in general. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan's about. Right? Just a guy beaten on the side of the road, passed by by the, the Levite and the priest, and aided by the hated yet good Samaritan. I can't expound the whole parable now, but the Samaritan is, I mean, it would, it's, it's like making the hero of the parable a jihadist, right? It, it, it's very hard to understand how much the Jews hated the Samaritans. They were heretics. They were half-breeds, right? They were racially impure, there had been all sorts of violent tension between the two groups. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to pick the person you despise the most, and I'm going to make them the hero of the parable. Right? It's the kind of parable that could get you killed. A missionary to the Middle East once said, this is a parable which if you tell it in Palestine or in Gaza in the wrong spot, it could get you killed. So who's the hero? This hated yet good Samaritan, Right? with this costly intervention of mercy. And then when Jesus asked the lawyer, who proved to be a neighbor to this man? He says, the one who showed him mercy. 
And the point, Jesus says, is, what's the point of the parable? Go and do likewise. (laughs) Go and do likewise. So finally then, let's look at receiving mercy. It's clear, and I I do want to state this clearly, that showing mercy cannot be the ground, the merit, you know, the meritorious basis on which we receive mercy. That's why I rewrote the Beatitude earlier as follows, right? Blessed are those who, having received great mercy, show mercy. For from God they shall receive further mercy. That's the force of Jesus' meaning here. Not only have we received mercy, but if we walk in mercy, we will receive further mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now and in the great and glorious day of judgment. In fact, the text is emphatic. It does this by placing the word they in the emphatic position. Right? It, only those who show mercy shall receive it. The psalmist, you might know the psalm, psalm 18, he says, the Lord, with the merciful, the Lord shows himself merciful. God appears to us, shows himself to us in a way that somewhat reflects the way we treat others. So there's an infinite river of mercy flowing from the wounds of the risen Christ down upon you and out into the world. You have drunk from it. And as you sacrificially show it, you drink more of it in. You keep drinking it. So there's a remedy in the ever-merciful God for mercy fatigue because I'm going to tell you, even though it's cheerful and joyous work, showing this kind of mercy is exhausting. (laughs) And there is such a thing, anybody who works in a helping profession knows this, right? There is such a thing as compassion fatigue. But in his triune life, it never runs out. There is an infinite supply of it. And finally, on the last day, we shall be judged. But we'll be judged in the gospel in Christ. Judged as those who, however imperfectly, have shown the fruit of mercy. And even on that day, even on that day, mercy will be in evidence. Because the reward will far exceed our paltry but genuine works, right? We must show mercy to the poor, to the naked, to the imprisoned, to the sick, to the stranger, to the enemy. But our reward is still all mercy. And it's that future dimension, this eschatological mercy, which Jesus is focused on here, right? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall on the great day receive mercy. This is about storing up mercy for yourself on the day of the Lord. Right? The coming day is, for the merciful, a day of salvation and gladness and open vindication of the mercy we've already received in Christ. Then it will be seen clearly. Then it will be open. That, as James puts it, mercy triumphs over judgment. If you want mercy to triumph over judgment with you on the last day, it needs to triumph over judgment with the people you're related to. 
and the people you interact with. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We've received great mercy. We're called here to pour ourselves out and showing it. And in doing so, we're promised that mercy will follow you all the days of your life. That beautiful promise from Psalm 23. It will follow you all the days of your life and it will engulf you in glory in the coming day of the Lord. We anticipate this, we enact it, we pray for it. It is the continual cry of the weak, right? We seek it for ourselves, for our neighbors, for the world every week when we say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.